Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. And from D.C. to Mississippi to Venezuela to Mozambique, people all over the globe are fighting back against white supremacy and U.S. imperialist violence. We know that this system is a wicked system. Yes. We know that it is a system that has been rooted in capitalism and racist oppression. Yes. And we know that when they came for us, they were coming for us. Yes. And we stand ready to support, to provide aid, to provide assistance to our siblings. And with accused mass murderers echoing the racist rhetoric of Donald J. Trump, a reprise of our conversation with Henry Giroux about the rise of neoliberal fascism in the United States and how fascism starts with language. Trump wants the leaders to believe that the truth doesn't matter. Well, when you educate a public to believe that, you educate a public that can be manipulated. You educate a public that can't tell good from evil, a public that can't recognize state violence, a public that can't recognize racism, a public that can't recognize what the factors are that are giving rise to a, a fascist state these stories and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Congress remains on its summer recess, despite calls for it to return and address new gun safety measures in the aftermath of mass shootings in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio. With Congress not in session, the focus of activists is on the White House, where on Monday a coalition of groups denounced the link between Trump's racist and anti-immigrant rhetoric with a manifesto written by the accused murderer in El Paso. Frahana Kara, executive director of the civil rights organization Muslim Advocates, pointed out that the Trump re-election campaign has already run more than 2,000 ads on Facebook referring to immigration as an invasion. What does the president do? He blames video games... People with mental health disabilities and anyone other than himself for the actions that he alone has inspired. Yesterday, he called on all Americans to reject bigotry. But you know the question that's on the mind of most Americans? When will he reject racism right. and bigotry? On Thursday, August 8th, members of Code Pink and other peace activists held a press conference in front of the White House where they condemned the Trump administration's new economic blockade of Venezuela as part of the long-running attempt to overthrow the democratically elected government of Nicolas Maduro. Activist Amika Syed reminded the crowd that unilateral sanctions are illegal and a form of warfare. The people who are there in that White House are continuing to engage in an act of warfare because the thing is, sanctions kill. Sanctions are going to cause a famine in Venezuela within the next 12 months if we also as U.S. citizens don't recognize that we too are victims of imperialism. We too struggle under the chains of capitalism. There will be a mass rally at the White House to unblock Venezuela on Saturday, August 10th, 12 p.m., as part of a global day of protest against the unilateral economic blockade of Venezuela. More on Venezuela and violence in the U.S. after headlines with Gerald Horn. Also, only days after the massacre in El Paso, which targeted primarily members of the Latinx community, federal agents arrested 680 immigrants working at seven chicken processing plants in Mississippi. Wednesday's raid 
One of the largest in U.S. history left many young children to return home from the first day of school to a locked home and their parents gone. At a press conference Thursday in Jackson, Mississippi, organized by the Mississippi Immigrant Rights Alliance, Rukia Lumumba was among the speakers who stressed that there are many communities and individuals in Mississippi in solidarity with those arrested. We know what it is to be ripped away from our families. We know what it is to be scared to leave our homes at night. We know what it is to be scared of the police. We know what it is to be scared of the U.S. government. And so when we say release them all, when we say stop the raids, we mean it wholeheartedly. Those in need of help or seeking help can contact the Mississippi Immigrant Rights Alliance at yourmira.org. That's Y-O-U-R-M-I-R-A dot org. A special hotline has also been set up to help specifically those families impacted. And that number is 978-993-3300. And that line is only for families impacted by the raids in Mississippi. And finally, in culture and media, the African Diaspora Film Festival starts August 9th today as we go to broadcast and goes through Sunday, August 11th, featuring more than 16 films, more than 16 films from 12 countries at the George Washington University Marvin Center in Northwest D.C. Highlights include opening night Ali's Comeback, the untold story about Muhammad Ali, the Robeson effect about the friendship between Danny Glover, Robert Guillory, and the artist and human rights icon Paul Robeson, and Black and Black, a documentary exploring the relationship between African Americans and African immigrants to the United States. Also, Sankofa Books and Video in Northwest D.C. is hosting a call-to-action meeting for small black businesses being impacted by gentrification in the Washington, D.C. area. That's August 9th. That's tonight as we go to broadcast again at 6.30 p.m. at 2714 Georgia Avenue in Northwest D.C. And those are headlines and happenings. When we come back, Gerald Horn with more international news. Stay with us.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm joined for this segment by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. He's a professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston and the author of more than three dozen books. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I want to start with this virtual economic blockade of Venezuela that was announced by the Trump administration this week. And according to one report, puts Venezuela on par with Cuba, Iran, North Korea, and Syria in how the United States is is treating it. And also, I think we've also mentioned that the existing sanctions have already killed more than 40,000 people between 2017 and 2018, and that's according to the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Well, when I think of this move against Venezuela, what it reminds me of is a book written by a former colleague of mine at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Lars Schultz some years ago wrote this book, Beneath the United States, and obviously that's a play on words. For example, if you look at certain maps, Latin America is, quote, beneath the United States, and also it reflects how the United States treats people in this hemisphere, particularly those heading south into South America. Fortunately, Venezuela is still being supported by Cuba, by Russia, by the People's Republic of China, and by Turkey. And of course, if you look at those particular countries, you'll soon detect that all four of them have contradictions and conflicts with the United States all their own. But I should also say that Venezuela is supported by a good deal of independent Africa, which recognizes that what has befallen Venezuela could easily befall any nation in Africa that has the gumption to somehow not tow the Yankee line. The other thing that happened this week, of course, after the horrific shootings in El Paso and in Dayton, Ohio, is that many countries, including Venezuela, issued travel warnings to their citizens about traveling to the United States and even mentioned popular destinations like amusement parks and stadiums because of the proliferation of guns here. And there's one quote from Venezuela that I wanted to read. It's from their foreign ministry. It said, uh, these increasing acts of violence have found an echo and support in the conversations and actions impregnated by racial discrimination and hatred against migrant populations pronounced and executed by the supremacist elite who holds political power in Washington, end quote. And that's from the foreign ministry of Venezuela. Well, I think that that particular statement also speaks to the book that I just referenced beneath the United States because it's difficult to separate the contempt in which Venezuela is held from the shootings that befell these folks of Mexican origin overwhelmingly and predominantly in southwest Texas just a few days ago. On the international level, it's also striking to note that the government of Mexico City has threatened to intervene on this side of the border to make sure that its nationals are not massacred like dogs in the streets. They've talked about seeking extradition of the accused to stand trial in Mexico City. I would hope that the authorities in Mexico City would also seek to raise this question 
as reflected in the very appropriate statement by the Venezuelan Foreign Ministry in the Organization of American States in Washington, D.C., not to mention the United Nations in New York and the Human Rights Commission of the United Nations in Geneva, Switzerland. I think it's important to recall that about one-third of those who were massacred at the Walmart in Southwest Texas were actually passport-carrying Mexican citizens and the rest mostly of Mexican origin, that is to say Mexican-Americans. And I think what this is telling us is that there's growing concern in the international community about the drift of developments in the United States of America. And I think that that's highly appropriate. Well, I guess for sure that uncertainty extends to the economic front as well. On Monday, the stock market plummeted in reaction to the lack of progress on trade talks between the United States and China. And then also the United States accused China of currency manipulation and China is basically flexing its own muscle and and not being cowed by the demands of the Trump administration. Well, I know that on the ground is seeking support from listeners as we speak. And I think that this is highly appropriate because on the ground is one of the few programs that seeks to link the domestic with the global. And this is highly appropriate, not only when one talks about what happened in Southwest Texas, but also with regard to this so-called trade war that's erupted between China and the United States. What I mean is, is that if you look at the growth of the ultra-right in the United States of America, recall what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia in August 2017 when neo-fascists and Klansmen and ultra-righteous were marching under the slogan, you will not replace us, Jews will not replace us. Now, this flagrantly racist and anti-Semitic chant is a reflection of their theory that's referred to as the Great Replacement. That is to say, supposedly there's this conspiracy to replace or weaken those defined as white on behalf of people of color, and particularly Jewish Americans. Now, obviously, with regard to the United States of America, this is ludicrous. It helps to shrink the still-continuing significance of white supremacy. But on the other hand, I think it's important to try to put this in a global context, because there's a real fear in the United States of America about the rise of China, and what that may portend with regard to the state of play over the last 500 years with those defined as white riding tall in the saddle. And I think it's very important, therefore, to try to beat back this hysteria concerning China, because ultimately I think that that will be in the best interest of the overwhelming majority of those in North America. Well, in addition to those stock market jitters over China and the United States, there are other international flashpoints. I was really struck by the fact that the Strait of Hormuz seems to be getting very crowded. This week, Russia announced that it would join Iran in joint military exercises there. And already, the British and the U.S. are claiming to have some type of maneuvers there. 
Israel is joined in with that group. So you have battleships, warships in a, in a very narrow body of water, and it seems like it's just a recipe for trouble. That it certainly is. But as I'm sure you know more than most, on the other side of the equation, you have the foreign ministry in Moscow basically standing alongside Iran in Iran's attempt to beat back aggression from Washington. Russia and Iran are not only cooperating with regard to the Strait of Hormuz, but as is well known, they're also cooperating with regard to Syria as well. I think it's also important to note that Germany and France have decided not to go along with the United States in terms of this militarization of the Straits of Hormuz. That is very good news, not least because it bespeaks a rift that is growing in the North Atlantic camp. On the other hand, with regard to Moscow in particular, we all should be concerned about the collapse of the nuclear agreement between Moscow and Washington. Once again, to connect the dots, Washington is happy about this collapse because they think that it will allow the United States to put more short-range nuclear missiles encircling China, which now seems to be the main antagonist of all. Well, another flashpoint in that area of the world is Kashmir. I do know that Modi of India ended the special status of Kashmir. And this special status basically allowed for kind of the protection of minority groups, which are the Muslim majority in Kashmir. So what do you see becoming of this big change by Modi? Well, like many problems, uh, you have to begin by talking about the misdeeds of British colonialism. And when Britain was forced out of what used to be called British India, circa 1947, as is well known, there was a partition leading to the rise of the country we now know as India and its frequent sparring partner, which we refer to as Pakistan. There was a dispute about what would be the fate of Kashmir, Jammu and Kashmir. It is a majority Muslim area in India, which has a majority Hindu population. Pakistan continues to claim parts of Kashmir that, in fact, are now considered to be part of India. And I should also say that China feels that part of this disputed territory should come within its jurisdiction. In any case, what the Hindu nationalist, Hindu chauvinist government of Prime Minister Modi has done is try to wreck the special status of Kashmir. And I think that you can probably expect something that you now see on the West Bank and Gaza. That is to say, a settlement. Mr. Modi, I would think, is going to try to change the demographic makeup and the demographic balance in this disputed territory to give it much more of a so-called Hindu caste. Uh, this is going to inflame tensions in Islamabad. And in fact, Pakistan has already moved to reduce diplomatic and commercial ties uh, with India. Uh, these are two nuclear armed powers. Traditionally, Pakistan has been backed 
by China. And now, as we know, the United States is trying to enlist India in an encirclement policy of China. So this has to be one of the most sensitive regions on the map as we speak. Well, finally, in terms of international news, I wanted uh, you to talk about Mozambique. I understand that there was an, an accord. I didn't realize that they needed an accord, that there was still some type of official ongoing conflict. Well, I'm afraid so. Mozambique and Southeast Africa, a neighbor of both Zimbabwe and South Africa, was also once a hunting ground for enslaved Africans. I dare say that there are those listening to my voice right now who are probably unbeknownst to themselves of Mozambican origin, uh, given the fact that in the 19th century, U.S. slave traders could be found off the Indian Ocean coast of Mozambique. Mozambique broke away from Portuguese colonialism in 1975, and the authorities in what was then called Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, was very unhappy about that because they knew that Mozambique would become a rear base for guerrilla forces seeking to overthrow that racist minority regime in Rhodesia. And so in return, what Rhodesia did was try to set up a sort of contra force in Mozambique, uh, the so-called Mozambique National Resistance, or RENAMO, as it's often referred to. And so for almost 40 years, there's been this conflict between the authorities in Maputo, Mozambique, the capital, and various iterations of Renamo uh, that was once backed avidly by uh, Rhodesia, now, I'm afraid to say, backed by right-wing forces in the United States and in Southern Africa generally. And in fact, one of the unique, unique aspects of the so-called Renamo is the fact that it's deeply influenced not only by the Christian ultra-right, that is to say forces here in North America, but also Muslim religious zealots who have taken a very strong stance and a very strong posture against the Maputo-based government. But if one is seeking to follow the money, uh, one should realize that Mozambique has massive reserves of natural gas offshore, and Anadarko of Texas is seeking to control that natural gas, which is part of an overall U.S. strategy of seeking a stranglehold over the natural gas market generally, which of course brings us back to U.S. conflict with Russia and Gazprom. But in any case, I trust and I hope that this peace accord between Renamo and the Maputo-based government will hold. Well, finally, and I'm sorry to say that we're running out of time, I definitely want to give the novelist, writer, thinker, Toni Morrison, her due on, on the ground. She joined the ancestors on Monday, and all week there have been tributes and just an outpouring of feeling from not only people in the African-American community, but people from all over the world who read her books and really gained a different perspective on on living and what it means to kind of be a human, you know, especially the African-American experience in, in our centuries here. Well, Tony Morrison is a proud graduate at Howard University in Washington, D.C., uh, formerly taught at Texas Southern University in Houston, another uh, HBCU a winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Literature and the Nobel Prize as well. 
a novelist whose work Beloved was turned into a, a rather stirring Hollywood movie featuring the actor and activist Danny Glover, amongst others, but also a number of other novels, including Sula, Song of Solomon, Jazz, and Mercy, Tar Baby, The Bluest Eye. I should also say that for those seeking to dip into her body of work, I might recommend, in addition to those novels, one of her forays into nonfiction. I'm thinking of Playing in the Dark, which is a very slim volume that looks at the question of whiteness with regard to the construction of U.S. literature and is a quite remarkable piece of nonfiction. She was also a very great editor, editing the work of Angela Davis, editing the work of Muhammad Ali, amongst others. And certainly, she deserves all the commendations she's received over the airwaves and in the press in recent days. Well, I'm, I'm glad that we could pay some tribute to Toni Morrison in our segment today. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And I'm joined by the writer and cultural critic Henry Giroux, Chair for Scholarship in the Public Interest at McMaster University in Ontario, Canada. Giroux's new book is The Terror of the Unforeseen, in which he describes the emergence of what he calls neoliberal fascism in the United States. He joins us from Hamilton, Ontario. Welcome to On the Ground, Professor Giroux, or can I call you Henry? Oh, Henry is, I prefer Henry. Okay. So in this series, we've explored various ways that economic and state violence is a part of an American-style fascism. And in your new book, The Terror of the Unforeseen, you also explore language, saying at one point, I think referencing the writer Ruth Ben-Ghiat, that fascism starts with words. You write that Trump's use of language and his manipulative use of the media as political theater echo earlier periods of propaganda, censorship, and repression. So talk about language itself being a harbinger, a pathway to fascism. Well, I I think that, as I I say in the book, and I think it's generally true that fascism really begins with language. It begins with the language of brutality. And what it attempts to do is it attempts to create friend-enemy distinctions in which some people are basically seen as outside the pale of what's knowable, what's acceptable, and uh, what it means to have a voice and what it means to participate in any given society. And I think that what Trump did immediately was invoke a language of hatred, a language of racism and violence against, of course, undocumented immigrants. And increasingly, what he's done is expand that language. I mean, because he he not only, in, in a sense, creates a language that demonizes people, he creates a language that seems to suggest that they don't really qualify in the remotest sense to what it means even to be a citizen in the United States. And so he links that language of hatred, that language of brutality, that language of white supremacy and ethnic cleansing with a language of disposability, which is really quite dangerous because at its heart is an appeal to white supremacy and white nationalism. And I think increasingly what we saw with his attack on these four congresswomen, women of color no less, was that they not only don't belong in the country because they are not white, but they have no right to criticize power because power, in in his estimation, should be unaccountable. So that's a really lethal kind of combination. I think the other side of this is that he's trading upon a degree of anger in the United States, some of which is quite legitimate. People have lost their jobs. Manufacturing towns have been decimated. There's an opioid crisis. And so he's traded on that economic crisis in a sense by trying to claim that he has all the answers to that, and that he's really going to address the roots of many working class problems. In fact, given what his language suggests, he, he absolutely has no interest in addressing the questions of economic inequality, questions of racial injustice. I mean, in a sense, he's a joker. I mean, he's a guy who basically makes these promises to the working class, but ends up giving tax cuts to the rich, ends up cutting food stamps for poor children, and and in a sense, wages an enormous attack upon the welfare state and, of course, upon workers and workers' rights and civil rights, all in the name of the language of white nationalism and white supremacy. And I think the last thing to say here is, remember, it starts with language, then it starts with the suppression of dissent, and then it begins and it evolves to the banning of books, to the banning of intellectuals, and then it it ends with the disappearance of people. So it's a very dangerous trend. 
So I wanted to play a little clip of the Greenville rally and because there are a number of things that happened after that, including comments from Trump doubling down on what happened at one point saying that he tried to stop the crowd. But let's just hear a little bit of what happened at that rally. And at a press conference just this week, when asked whether she supported Al-Qaeda, she refused to answer. She didn't want to give an answer to that question. Omar blamed the United States for the crisis in Venezuela. I mean, think of that one. And she looks down with contempt on the hardworking Americans, saying that ignorance is pervasive in many parts of this country. And obviously, and importantly, Omar has a history of launching vicious anti-Semitic screeds. That was Donald Trump speaking at his campaign rally June 17th in Greenville, North Carolina, where he used racist language to attack four freshman congresswomen. This is Esther Averam on On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. And I'm speaking with cultural critic and author Henry Giroux. And we're talking about how fascism starts with words. This is our monthly segment, The F Word on Fascism. And so, Henry, I wanted to get you to react to that segment after that rally. He claimed that he tried to stop them during the chant, which wasn't true. And then he also, after that, praised the crowd as patriots. So I just wanted to kind of get your reaction to the whole idea of, I guess, lying, first of all, and then uh, the repetitive lies, and then also the invoking of patriotism to, I guess, stoke his base and and his version of history, really. I actually just wrote a piece on this that just appeared in Truth Out. But I, I think there are three things here that are really important. I think that, first of all, he did lie. Uh, he didn't try to stop the crowd at all. I think there was 12 to 15 seconds. He just stood there sort of jutting his, his chin out in a, in a pose similar to what the way Mussolini used to jut it, thrust his chin out. And I, and I think that the, the chant, you know, send her back, uh, send, you know, so forth and so on, I mean, to me, echoed what I believe happened in the Nuremberg rallies of the 1930s, where all of a sudden there's this whipping up of the crowd and a kind of orgy of pleasure around the presupposition that anybody who is who provides dissent or is critical of Trump or the government, in this case, uh, actually should leave the country. That you, you can actually be expelled from the United States for basically arguing against you know, state assumptions about what matters in the world. But more than that, it's, it's also an attack on a notion of citizenship, which seems to suggest that the only viable form of citizenship can, can be uh, uh, attributed to people who are basically white. These are all women of color. And so the implication seems to be they don't belong here precisely because they're non-white, or people don't belong here precisely because of their religion, or people don't belong here precisely because of their ethnicity. I mean, that's very dangerous, because what you're really talking about is not just an attack on the Constitution, on the attack on citizenship. 
You're basically talking about a, a logic of disposability, a logic of racial and social cleansing. We have to get rid of those elements that don't belong in the United States because they somehow represent a threat to the United States. Now, combine all of that, which to me is an utterly fascist logic, to say the very least, with the presupposition that you have a president who, according to the Washington Post, and you don't really have to read the Washington Post to know this, has lied now over 10,000 times. And I, and I think when we talk about Trump's lies, rather than just saying, well, he lied and here's how we can prove it, I think the real issue here is in the consistency of the lies. Because Trump wants the leaders to believe that the truth doesn't matter. And that, you know, if the truth doesn't matter, there's no distinction between facts and fiction. Well, when you educate a public to believe that, you educate a public that can be manipulated. You educate a public that can't tell good from evil, a public that can't recognize state violence, a public that can't recognize racism, a public that can't recognize what the factors are that are giving rise to a, a fascist state that echoes, in many ways, the, the kind of fascism that we saw in the past. So it, it seems to me that ultranationalism that was at work there, the notion of the elevation of instinct over emotion, the contempt for dissent, the utter racism, the rewriting of the meaning of citizenship, these are all part of a logic of, of a kind of updated fascist politics that it seems to me now characterizes the state we're in at this point in history. Oh, I was also struck by the references to the military and not only the fact that that you cannot uh, criticize the United States, but that you cannot criticize the military and the military actions, um, which I guess, you know, there's there's not those actions are synonymous with the United States. And so it means that. Uh, in situations like Vietnam and Iraq, where we have engaged in illegal wars on people around the globe, that you're not supposed to be critical of that. And that, and with so much of the nation's treasure going to war and the war spy industrial complex, that also struck me as very dangerous, especially when it's extended to the border here domestically and the hiring of all these people who are given jobs to kind of enforce that order. Well, I, I think that one way of understanding this is that what you have under Trump is you have a heightened sense of militarization. The militarization now becomes the organizing principle of society itself. And what that means is that the society is governed basically primarily in the interest of a war culture, meaning that increasingly more forms of behavior are being criminalized, Social problems are being looked at not in ways to understand what produces them and how you can address them, but to punish people who basically are victims of those problems. And that the war abroad basically now becomes part of the war at home. So it seems to me that what we're talking about when we talk about Trump's language being militarized, or we talk about the endless attempt, rise of the punishing state at the expense of the welfare state, is you're talking about the emergence of a country now dominated by a war culture. Remember... One of the things that we often see in authoritarian countries is that as social problems become criminalized and the welfare state is really under enormous attack, money is shifted away from the welfare state into basically the military-industrial-academic complex. And it seems to me that's what we see happening under Trump. Trump represents a kind of toxic masculinity that we don't want to overlook here. I mean, think about his celebration of other dictators. 
his absolute infatuation with power, his grandiose assumptions about the spectacle, his turning holidays into nothing more than updated military parades that mimic what we see in North Korea. I mean, this is a guy who is enormously dangerous. This is a guy who basically wants to punish his enemies. This is a guy who wants to militarize as much of society as possible. And this is a guy who is upping the ante of what I call state terrorism. I mean, when you tell the police that they, when they put people in a, in a patrol car, they should be, you know, they should bang their head against the door. Or you seem to suggest that the police should be unchecked in the way in which they deal with people who are marginalized by race and, and color and class. It's very dangerous. I mean, it's very hard to miss the militarism that Trump is absorbed in and it produces and is now attempting to legitimate in both his domestic and foreign policies. It's because we're talking about language and fascism and also right now militarism. This is the one area where corporate media that is basically considers itself uh, anti-Trump or the resistance to Trump. This is the one area where they fawn over him and agree with him. And even at some point say this is where he is his most presidential. So I'm going to play a clip, that famous clip of Brian Williams fawning over the missiles when Trump struck Syria. <laughs> we see these beautiful pictures at night from the decks of these two U.S. Navy vessels in the eastern Mediterranean. I am tempted to quote the great Leonard Cohen. I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons. Um, and they are beautiful pictures of, uh, of fearsome armaments making what is for them a brief flight over to this airfield. That was Brian Williams on MSNBC waxing poetic about U.S. weapons of war. So it seems to me that the language of the Cold War here in the United States can easily turn into a hot war. And if I want to focus on channels like MSNBC and CNN that love Trump's rhetoric when it's against Russia, China, Venezuela, or now Iran, in your book, you quote a television critic for the New York Times saying that these outlets have played a dangerous role in channeling populist anger. And David Bell is right that the educational force of this media machine poses a threat to the United States. The first casualty of this re-education of America has been truth the second moral responsibility, and the third, the last vestiges of justice. The result is a massive increase in human misery and suffering worldwide. So that also speaks to this whole militarization that you were talking about. And one of the things that it seems to me is so intriguing about this right-wing populism that we see emerging both in the United States and across the globe is that you have an economic crisis that is not mocked by a crisis of ideas. And what I mean by that is that one of the things that the left and many others have failed to acknowledge is that neoliberalism, fascism, they're not just about economic structures and economic forms of domination. They're also about ideological structures. They're also about the creation of desire, the production of certain forms of understand, ways of understanding the world, about the production of agents, about the production of narratives. And it seems to me that this question of education being central to politics has often been lost on many people on, for many people on the left who want to focus largely on macroeconomic issues. And it seems to me that if you don't have a, if you don't have a society that is, is critical, that is informed, that in some way is able to be analytical, that is able to hold power accountable, then you, you don't have, you have a mass. 
you have a group of people who basically are ill-equipped theoretically and intellectually to deal with the conditions around them and thus become more susceptible, it would seem to me, to simplistic ideas, to populist leaders, to believing that one person can lead them into, into, the, you know, into the promised land, as we see with Trump. And I think when we talk about education, we're not just talking about schooling. We're talking about the mass media. We're talking about mainstream media, which endlessly either reduces people to consumers and operates off the assumption that the only obligation of citizenship is to buy things, or you talk about uh, an ideology that increasingly, and this to me is the most dangerous element of this, that increasingly leads people to believe that the only problems that matter are individual problems. That all problems are individual problems. That, that basically, if you're talking about the environment, then it's really basically your fault. If you're talking about poverty, then we say that people are poor because they, they like being poor. Homeless, they like to sleep outside. You know, very stupid kinds of elements of a sort of hardcore neoliberalism that basically removes responsibility from larger systemic considerations and enfeebles people so that they cannot translate private troubles into larger public issues. This is a very dangerous ideology, and it's spread endlessly in the media every day. And the only way to counter that is basically now through the alternative media programs like this and others that are basically doing everything they can to provide a very different language and a very different set of understandings. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Averm, and I'm speaking with cultural critic and author Henry Giroux, and we're talking about how fascism starts with words. We'll be right back.
this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and I'm speaking with cultural critic and author Henry Giroux, and we're talking about how fascism starts with words. His new book, The Terror of the Unforeseen. And we were talking, before the break, Henry, we were talking about the power of corporate media But, you know, it's more than Fox News to blame, and it's also more than Trump and the Republicans also. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on the media spectacle from D.C. of the Mueller testimony. From my perspective, Democrats continuing this political theater of the debunked Russiagate narrative and failing to mount a case for impeachment that will go nowhere instead of focusing on the issues of health care or schools or jobs or climate change and things that really impact people's lives. I thought about how in your book you talk about how words create reality and then obscure reality for people. No, I, I think it's a fabulous insight. I mean, look, the Democrats basically live in the shadow of Goldman Sachs. They live in the shadow of the financial elite, and they're wedded to them. The Republicans represent the high, a hardcore relationship. The Democrats basically, with the exception, of course, of some younger Congress people, represent the, the soft core version. And what that means is that they're constantly engaged in a politics of diversion. I mean, they engage in this spectacle. This is not to say that the Russians didn't interfere with the, uh, with the election. But the real, that's not the real problem. I mean, the real problem is economic inequality. The real problem is the long-standing legacy of racism. The real problem is the potential for nuclear war. The real problem is an environmental crisis that suggests that the Earth might not be here in 10 years if we allow these fools to continue with the modes of governance that they're engaged in. So the real problem is that public goods are disappearing. Schools are being privatized. They're being defunded. The universities, faculty and universities, 70% of faculty and university are part-time. And that's a direct attack on academic freedom. The press and the media are owned by five or six companies. I mean, we are in crisis mode. Believe me when I say that. I mean, we are one step away from a ruthless form of governance and dictatorship. Call it what you may, authoritarianism, totalitarianism, fascist politics. But it seems to me not to talk about the issues that are producing this, not to talk about the enormous suffering that people are going through in the United States, 40% 40% of all families in the United States live on a day, on a weekly basis, meaning that on a weekly basis, they face challenges about whether they're going to have enough food or to be able to pay for health care. Three men in the United States own as much as 50% of the bottom half of the United States. That's nothing more than not just simply a tragedy. It's an ethical nightmare. I mean, we no longer live in a democracy. All the commanding institutions of the United States are now controlled by the financial elite. And so it seems to me, if you really want to talk about democracy, if you really want to talk about the threats to democracy, you're going to have to talk about the economic, political, and social forces that are at work in undermining that, and the Democrats don't do it. So because language is connected to knowledge, I want you to talk a little bit about the role of education and educators in the formal setting, in schools and universities, and pushing back against uh, kind of like know-nothingness and the appeal to ignorance that much of this phase of fascism seems to require. I've been writing about education for a long time. And as you, as you probably know, I, I was a close friend of Paulo Freire for 15 years. And I, and I think that one of the things that we understood about education, beginning with the writings that we did in the 1960s and 1970s, that education is not neutral. 
education is really a struggle over knowledge, a struggle over power, and a struggle over identities. And it seems to me that its first mission should be to educate people to be critical agents, to be able to engage the world in, in which they learn how to govern rather than be governed. And I think that anybody who makes the claim that education is neutral misses the boat. Uh, it's not neutral. And I think that what we have seen in the last, since the 1980s, with the election of Reagan, is a full-fledged attack on education as a democratic public good. And I, and I think that what we need to see, and what we have seen somewhat uh, in the United States with the, with the range of strikes on the part of uh, public school teachers, is that they want to defend education as a, as a democratic public good. They're not just asking for higher wages, which of course they deserve. They want a place where kids can really be educated. And I think that educators have a responsibility to stand up, stand out, mobilize, join with other groups, and to do everything they can to preserve education as a public good. Look, I mean, you have been suggesting this throughout this exchange. Ignorance is not innocent. I mean, as James Baldwin said, you combine ignorance with power, and you really have a lethal form of domination. And I think that we need to take seriously the fact that our schools, public education and higher education, may be one of the few places left where dissent and exchange and critical dialogue and the possibility for intellectual growth can take place to fight the rampant anti-intellectualism that now has become the organizing principle of American society endorsed and sanctified and legitimated and exhibited by the very president of the United States. So it seems to me that this fight over education at its best is a fight over democracy. It's a fight over creating people who are informed. Remember, as Dewey, John Dewey once said, you can't have a democracy without informed citizens. And he was absolutely right. What did Hannah Haran say? She said, the essence of fascism is thoughtlessness. The inability to understand and the social costs that emerge out of our actions. And they're, they're absolutely right. And I think that's a terrific question, and it's really worth, it seems to me, thinking about. And author and cultural critic Henry Giroux will have the last word on today's show. His new book is The Terror of the Unforeseen, published by the L.A. Review of Books. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. Peace.